0: And welcome to Lessons from History with Lizzie and Daisy. Today we're going to be talking about two 19th century pioneers of female education, Frances Buss and Dorothea Bill. They're better known as Miss Buss and Miss Bill. They're born just before the dawn of the Victorian era. They're associated with three very famous girls' schools in England, and their influence is still very much felt today. So that's our topic for this podcast. Um, So Lizzie, I'm going to start by asking you, at the time when uh, Miss Bass and Miss Beale is born, which is uh, 1827, 1831 respectively, what are the opportunities for girls who want an education at this time?
1: It's an interesting one because you might think that the story of women's education in England is going to be some wonderful linear progression, but actually it really has its ups and its downs. People agree that women should be educated, but that that education's got to be appropriate for their, their class, their social standing and their gender because it's acknowledged that just as women are physically weaker than men on average their intellectual capacity was also on average going to be smaller so you do have periods where there are a lot of focus on women's education you know nunneries in medieval england which are centers of scholarship following the reformation there's a lot of focus on on women being literate because literacy is so important in terms of uh, the religious faith and being able to read the bible and so women need to be able to read the bible and they're also generally responsible for educating their children so they need to be able to teach them to read and if you think about the kind of enlightenment era there's a you know a number of women who are really well educated and prominent in society it's sort of the age of the literary salon so actually it's a bit disappointing when you get into the beginning of the 19th century that the opportunities are beginning to become uh fewer for for women to become educated particularly for middle and upper class girls. Really, it's a bit disastrous. And and you've got middle class girls being more ignorant than some of the working class girls who are able to attend some of these state funded elementary schools. I think there's an association that the middle class women really are meant to be ornamental. It's the angel of the home era. And in some ways, because it's a society that's industrialised and because there's, um, uh, you know, a, a system where even sort of relatively lower middle class families can afford servants, wives really, there's no need for them to take on a, any sort of practical domestic management, but they also don't take on paid employment.
0: Right. So it's also people have got a bit of leisure and the, the social status is to, to to not do something, to not have to, have to work, to not have to, to do things. And so actually for, for, for middle class and upper middle class women, that's that's not great.
1: No, it's it, it's poor. And it's even reflected if you think of Queen Victoria. She learns modern foreign languages, a bit of history, a bit of geography. But she only has really a quite a basic grasp of Latin. She reads some of the classics in translation. If you compare her to Elizabeth I, Elizabeth I is a much better educated ruler. Wow.
0: Actually, yeah. You, you look at some of the things you read about then, what is it, Roger, Roger Asham? So, yeah yeah, yeah that's right um yeah okay so elizabeth yeah yeah yeah. she's that's that's a really interesting point i'd never thought of it like that um so actually in some ways you could say for upper middle class middle class women maybe things have, have gone a bit backwards yeah. um re- really interesting but at this moment francis bus and dorothy Bill are, are, are waiting to transform that yes um so actually they're gonna they're gonna turn all this around and, and do great things for female education so let's, let's start with Frances Buss. Um, tell, us, tell us a bit about her. What, what, what is, what is, she's born into this culture where you say, actually, maybe it's not very promising for a girl's education. Um, what does she do? What's her, what's her upbringing like? So Frances
1: Mary Buss is born in 1827 and she is the eldest of 10 children, but half her siblings die in their infancy. And she, in fact, is the only girl to survive. She grows up in London, and uh, she's from a sort of middle, middle class family. Her father is a bit of a disappointment. He's a lacklustre artist. And in fact, there's a connection to Dickens, which I know you'll appreciate. He gets a chance of having a big break when the illustrator of the Pickwick papers, Robert Seymour, commits suicide. And suddenly he's got this chance and he produces three etchings. But by the time he gets to the third... They've dropped him.
0: Wow! So that's that must be pretty upsetting, I guess, for the for the family at that time. Um, and and that is interesting, actually, what you said about the Pickwick Papers and the illustrations of the Pickwick Papers, because as you say, the first illustrator, Robert Seymour, um, killed himself. Uh, I think there's some um, discussion, maybe it was after an argument with Dickens about illustrations of the Pickwick papers
1: oh, really poison chalice hey eh? yeah i know i know i
0: was thinking that maybe
1: bus was happy to get out alive yeah
0: exactly um so the yeah so so robert robert seymour uh, kills himself and then francis mary bus's father he takes over but actually doesn't doesn't get the gig for very long no um and and is is, is kind of moved on so that's I guess a bit disappointing for the whole family, um, and, 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 a, and a blow for all of them. Um, so, how are they making a living? How are they how are they surviving um, the, the bus family?
1: That's where it gets interesting because, in a way, his failure provides an opening for Francis Mary Bus's mother, who is also called Francis, and she is the one who manages to steer them through these hardships. They live around Camden in a sort of arty milieu, and uh, they're involved with a lot of people who are part of the early years of University College London. As was fairly common with large families, Frances Mary Buss was often farmed out to her grandparents. Um, being the eldest child, she was the one who needed occupying whilst her mother was busy producing all of her siblings. And the grandparents also were a bit too busy to look after Francis Mary Bus, so to occupy her what they do is they send her to a local day school and she enjoys it and actually does well and so as a consequence when she returns home uh, to her parents in Camden she then attends a further two day schools one very very close to her home and then the second one she goes to is being run by a Mrs Wyand and by the time that Francis Mary Bus gets to the age of 14 she's basically learnt all that Mrs Wyand can teach her. And so she's progressed to assisting her by teaching the younger children in the school. Wow. And then by the time she gets to the age of 16, Mrs. Wyand often disappears off completely (laughs) and
0: leaves her to run the show. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I must remember, when when I trained as a teacher, I did teach first. Um, And uh, there was a a bit of controversy about it when I was uh, sort of training. The idea that teach first, you didn't get very much training. Uh, So these youngsters are just fresh out of university and you're throwing them in with sort of six weeks only had six weeks training Uh, but you're looking back here and you're saying well they're putting a 16 year old in charge (laughs) and she's running the show um so okay so she's getting this sort of early apprenticeship into into teaching and education and she's teaching the younger students um, and it's I guess because she's reached the top of the school and also you know is there where, where, where would you go? Is there anywhere else for her to go at this point?
1: Well, that's just it, Daisy. That's just the problem. Where is there that you can go on to? There isn't really um, any opportunity for Frances Mary Buss at that point. And so she's stuck becoming a teacher herself. But this is a problem that other people are aware of. And it's a problem that's about to develop a solution.
0: Okay. And so is this the moment where we turn to... Uh, we've taken Frances Mary Bus up to the age of 14. So we're now going to turn to uh, Dorothea Bill. So tell us a bit about Dorothea Beale then.
1: So Dorothea Beale, in many ways, is very similar to Frances Mary Buss. So she also grows up in London. She also grows up as part of a large family. She's only four years younger. Her family are a little bit better off than the buses. And it's a bit more of a stable upbringing, a bit more scholarly, and perhaps a bit more conventional and pious. Than the buses, though both families are religious. Her parents initially try educating their daughters with governesses, but they can't get a decent governess. They keep employing these women. They come to the house, and they just don't have the ability to uh, support their daughters. So in the end, they send Dorothea away to a boarding school.
0: And this is interesting because it feels like this is a bit of a constant complaint of the the nineteenth century upper middle classes uh, that you just you just can't get the staff. So you hear it a lot, uh, you know. 20th century, you hear Virginia Woolf constantly complaining. You know, you can't get the servants, can't get the cooks. But what you're saying is, Dorothea Bill's family they can't get the governesses, so they send her off to a boarding school. And, and then what happens?
1: It doesn't really work because she's quite a sickly teenager. So at 13, she's considered not to be well enough to carry on at the boarding school, and she's sent home. And then she spends the next three years directing her own education so she's a member of a couple of libraries she gets her own books out she shares some lessons with a tutor that the family managed to get hold of who's been employed to help one of her brothers with classics so the brother is studying at merchant Taylor's school so that the brother is um at a a public school and she particularly enjoys reading history but she also makes the decision that she's going to teach herself euclidean geometry. As you do. Why not? She's just about to start on calculus (laughs) when her parents decide to send her and some of her sisters to a finishing school in Paris, and that's in 1847.
0: I feel like maybe I'm I'm being, you know... I don't want to come across as being anti-French here, but is there going to be much calculus at finishing schools in Paris? (laughs) Uh, I, I don't know. You tell me.
1: Well, she goes to Mrs Bray's school for English girls in Paris, and she isn't very happy there she thinks it's a waste of time she thinks that her own studies at home were far superior she doesn't like being restricted by the routine but fortunately for her the experience is quite short-lived because on the outbreak of the 1848 revolution <laughs> the parents whisk them back to london so she's back in london she's 17 at this point and and so now what she's given the task of supervising the education of her younger siblings so like francis mary Bass. Once again, she becomes the teacher.
0: What, what happens next? I think what you're going to tell us a bit about now is, uh, as we said, there's, there's not many institutions for, for women who want an education. They want to escape finishing school so they can concentrate on, on the higher calculus. But there's one that, that's just about to start at this time and is still around today on Harley Street. So, so, so what's that? In
1: 1845, David Lang, who's a chaplain of the Middlesex Hospital, decides that he's going to raise money and he acquires a building in Harley Street for the intention of creating a home for unemployed governesses. And the view is to provide these unemployed governesses with a form of training and some form of certificate... So that they can go out there and get jobs with families and so that the families will have a sense of what they're getting. They won't get into the pickle that the Beals were getting where they have um, young girl after young girl with really not enough of an educational background to be doing the job.
0: Okay, so it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's for governesses, but in some ways, the way it sounds, it sounds like a bit of a prototype teacher training college. Would that be fair? Yes, very much so. And by 1847,
1: he'd managed to persuade some of the professors who were lecturing at King's College London to give lectures at this home in Harley Street. And then one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting, a Miss Murray, decides that this is a very important scheme and she manages to secure royal patronage. And thus, the Queen's College on Harley Street is formed. And they very quickly after that decide to open their lectures Not just to these unemployed governesses, but to women who would like to come and attend. Each girl has to be chaperoned in the lectures. And actually, Miss Murray is very good at organising a whole sort of roster of um, older married women who will chaperone these young girls d- to the lectures Brilliant. so that they can maintain their respectability.
0: The college, you know, becomes a big success. And what kind of subjects are they studying there? So when you're saying they're having these lectures, whatever, what, what are they studying? What are they getting the lectures in?
1: Frances Mary Buss and Dorothy Beale are among the first attendees, though they don't actually meet at this stage. So Frances Mary Buss is having to go into evening lectures to fit around a, her own teaching work. Francis Marybus gets certificates in French, German and Geography. And Dorothea Beale gets certificates in those three subjects, but also Mathematics, English and Latin. So the sort of subjects that you would expect those governesses to go on
0: to teach. Yeah, that's interesting. We were talking about this in our exams episode, about how some subjects have changed, but some haven't. Um, things like, yeah, French, German, Geography, Maths, English, Latin... Those are still subjects that are studied today, maybe more or less emphasis or more or less popular, but definitely recognisable. Okay, so they they get their certificates, they get their certificates in these subjects. What happens then? I guess it's almost like the, the same issue that we saw before. You know, you get to fourteen, where do you go next? But actually, is there a similar thing here? You've got your certificates from this pioneering new uh, new college, but what what do you do next? Um, so, so what do they go on to do to do next? To so start with, start with Miss Bus.
1: Francis Mary Bus had been helping her mother run a school in Kentish Town in order to support the family finances. But once she receives the certificates, they decide to move the school to Camden Town and that Frances Mary Buss will be in charge. She will be the headmistress with her impressive qualifications.
0: So she's still pretty young, right? She's, She's still... What is she at this age? So in
1: 1850... This is 1850 that she sets up the school. Francis Mary Bass is 23. <laughs>
0: 23, wow. I can remember when I, uh, again, you know, of my early days when I started teaching, there was a, a huge fuss about a head teacher. Actually, you know what, not that far from Kentish Town, over in, in Marlebone, um, and he was 29. And everyone was like, oh, 29, that's so young. Um, and actually, he went on to do a, a fantastic job, do a superb job. But Francis Mary Bass, is 23. So yeah, she, you know, twenty nine. You're just slacking, really, aren't you? Um, so she's twenty three. She's the headmistress of a school. And are you telling me as well? Another thing you've said to me before is she the first person to use the term headmistress?
1: Yes. So she. she so Frances Mary Bass becomes the first headmistress.
0: That is such a Victorian word, isn't it? As well, headmistress. Uh, it really is, and I, I think they have renamed. They've got the sort of um, there's a, a grouping of. Uh, independent school heads that used to be called the headmasters' conference, and then it became headmasters and headmistresses, and now I think they maybe just they call it the head teachers, because uh, there's something about the phrase headmistress, isn't there? And and I think there are some heads today who quite like it um, and want to keep using it, uh, and there are others for whom it has these probably quite Victorian connotations. But but Frances Mary Buster is the pioneer; she's the first to use that, and she's she's the headmistress of of North London Collegiate Collegiate Schools, which is still with us today and and still famous and still very well known
1: yes but what's interesting actually is that the, the school she names it the north london collegiate school for ladies and it's called that because there is a north london collegiate school for gentlemen there's a north london collegiate school for boys so she, she is having to differentiate and yeah so she, she's running this school from, the, from out of the family's home in camden and it's just the perfect location because you've got a really swelling middle class in that area looking to occupy their daughters and in her first year running the school she she starts with 35 pupils she ends the year with 115 wow triples
0: her role in the fir- in the first year fantastic so it's, it's still around today you know it's still so it's obviously successful but it, you're saying it's successful right from the start and i guess also interesting you, you've mentioned camden north london quite a few times uh, i think north london intellectuals even today have a bit of a reputation don't they you, you heard i think liz trust was it about a year ago complaining about north london intellectuals Driving to the BBC in their taxis or whatever, um, so this is the probably the ancestors of those of those North London intellectuals, right? And they want opportunities for their daughters, and they have a bit of spare money, and they're prepared to pay to send them to this um, this pioneering new school. So, so, how how much do they pay, and what kind of lessons are they getting? What kind of subjects are they studying?
1: So, it's two guineas a quarter,
0: and that buys you
1: lessons in scripture, English, history, geography, arithmetic, French, Latin, drawing. Class singing and calisthenics. So they do mild exercise in the middle of the day. Nothing to work up the sweat. But you could also have lessons in Italian, German, music, painting and dancing as extras. And it's a real family affair, so her mother, her father and her brothers all assist in the teaching. But Frances Mary Bus is the headmistress, and she is in charge. So that's really quite sort of delightful, really. You know that it that it is a woman who is in charge, and, and you know a young woman.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. It's not something you really sort of think of necessarily, even if you have the image of the Victorians. But yeah, she's she's running the show. So and that's fantastic. She's only sort of twenty three, as you said at, at this point. So that's that's North London Collegiate and Frances Mary Bus, and that's you've taken us up to eighteen fifty there. So what what's happening at this time with with Dorothea? She has a bit more of a difficult time of it. She does so
1: well at the Queen's College, Harley Street, that she actually becomes a member of staff there. So she teaches on the staff at Queen's for seven years, and eventually she's made the head of the preparatory branch of the school, which had expanded downwards to teach younger girls. Again, they see that there's there's a market for that. She she travels quite extensively. She travels in Germany and Switzerland to learn from their education systems. But in a way, it's a bit problematic because the more she sees of the world, the more discontented she becomes with the way that High Street is being managed, the way that Queen's College is being managed. And she feels that the drive to expand the school means that standards have really rather slipped. And she also finds it rather frustrating that there's a quite a centralised power structure with a lot of men in charge and that she doesn't get much of a voice. She's got to decide, you know, am I am I going to stay and try and reform from within, or am I going to try and break free and have a fresh start? And in the end, she decides that she is going to channel her frustration in a positive direction and start a new role. And she applies for and is appointed a head teacher at a school called the Clergy Daughters School, which is in Carsterton up in Cumbria. It's a school with a strongly Calvinist ethos. And she is just 26 years old at the time.
0: And this is where it gets really interesting because this school, the Clergy Daughter School uh, up in what's now Cumbria, this is actually got a bit of literary fame, perhaps unwanted literary fame, because we've been discussing all this time girls' education, girls' schools, how there aren't very many of them. But maybe some sharp-eared listeners will be thinking, well, there is at this time a very famous girls school in english literature which is the girls school that's that's featured in jane Eyre, which is also uh in the, the frozen north and um, perhaps not not cumbria but but um not too far from there and this girls school in in jane Eyre is called lowood school and is it right that lowood school is based on this clergy daughter school
1: yeah among the alumna of the clergy daughter school are the Bronte sisters. So Charlotte Bronte went to the closure daughter's school and all the horrific experiences that Jane Eyre <laughs>
0: yeah, Okay, <laughs> so we're talking here, as I say, mid-19th century and Jane Eyre's published in 1847. And as you say, it has got this completely harrowing description of, it's called Lowood School, where it's based on the school the Brontes went to. And it's been a few years since I've read Jane Eyre, but my, my sort of big recollection of it is that um, cholera stalks the corridors. And I don't want to give too much away in case people haven't read Jane Eyre, but it's pretty bleak. And as I say, it's, it's cold, it's remote, it's isolated. <laughs> and what you're telling me is at the age of 26, Dorothea Bill is leaving London, leaving kind of her family, what she knows. And she's travelling up to take on this new role as, as the head teacher. Of, of of this school yeah. is, is that right well that's i mean that's pretty brave
1: it's incredibly brave now i would say that the school had improved a bit from charlotte bronte's time they'd moved to a slightly healthier location <laughs> where um they weren't suffering so many <laughs> waterborne illnesses but it's still i think pretty bleak and unfortunately for dorothea beale bless her for trying but the experience is a complete disaster
0: oh really oh no i was hoping you were going to give me a really inspirational story there and say you know she gets takes over and turns it around and it's a model school but but no (laughs) okay
1: what happens is she's thwarted by the committee of six clergymen who effectively oversee the school so despite the fact that they'd appointed her they oppose her every innovation and in the end she's so frustrated she says you know i'm I'm going to resign if you don't let me do some of the reforms that I that I want to do and they call her bluff and say see ya <laughs> so I think it's just really humiliating for her queens are actually happy to take her back they they want to take her back they want her to come back and and, and teach there but she she doesn't want to go she doesn't want to sort of feel like she's moving backwards in that way
0: and at this point she's about 26 27 so she's had that time at king's has some time at this um school in the north neither of them really worked out but she is obviously very well qualified has got lots of good experience so what does she decide to do she hears on the
1: grapevine that there's another job that's going to become available it's the post of principal at cheltenham ladies college And Cheltenham Ladies College had been founded just a few years earlier by a group of residents in in Cheltenham who wanted an institution that could provide um, education for their daughters. It's actually really sought after this job. There's 50 applicants, but she is head and shoulders above the pack and she gets the gig. So she starts there as principal aged 27. Once again, there's quite a few men in the background but she does get a bit more of a free hand. So uh, this school, which had been founded five years earlier, it was described to be a school for the daughters of noblemen and gentlemen. And it was in a a large Georgian house. It has quite a similar curriculum to NLCS, but the fees also did include classes in, in music and drawing. So those weren't additional extras.
0: And the fees were slightly higher. And it's not, it's not just the fees, is it? So it's, it's a, a bit of a different... We talked about the sort of the North London intellectual milieu, perhaps, of North London collegiate. But Cheltenham Ladies is a bit of a, as you say, the daughters of noblemen and gentlemen. Uh, Cheltenham Ladies then and now is a, a probably a slightly different demographic to North London collegiate. Is that fair?
1: Totally fair. And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of that social stratification is baked in absolutely from the start we might talk about it a little bit more later when we talk about the other schools that Francis Mary Buss uh, becomes involved with but yes Cheltenham ladies college is is a college for ladies and the committee which has oversight actually hold the power to veto certain pupils admission so they really want to make sure that only girls from the right background get to attend the school. Frances Mary Buss actually is is a lot, a lot more liberal at North London Collegiate. She doesn't have a problem with daughters of tradespeople attending her school as long as they can afford the fees, that's absolutely fine. And actually she's she's Frances Mary Buss is more liberal in other ways. She actually is happy to accept girls from different faiths. Parents can opt their children out of the religious instruction that she provides at North London Collegiate if they want to.
0: It's hard, isn't it, in any discussion of anything to do with the Victorians you always end up coming back to class, maybe you always end up a little bit as well coming back to religion. So, so we're seeing that there. And so what's interesting, is, you know, Cheltenham Ladies College perhaps aimed at this um, maybe upper middle class, upper class demographic, uh, North London collegiate, the, the sort of North London intellectual, but, you know, it's still fee paying. It's still going to be relatively wealthy, I'm guessing, even though they're a bit more open-minded about entrance uh, than, than Cheltenham Ladies. And so obviously what we're missing is something perhaps for, for poorer people. Um, for people who can't afford the fees of 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 north london or cheltenham and that's something that actually Frances mary bus is also agitated by right so she she's even though things are going well at north london collegiate she she decides she wants something a little bit different and she wants to set up another kind of school
1: yeah so when you get to 1870 so so we're jumping forward a a little bit now north london collegiate's been a, a great success She's actually rebranded it, so it's it's gone from being North London Collegiate School for Ladies to North London Collegiate School for Girls. So again, we have that kind of class thing coming through the distinction between Cheltenham Ladies' College and North London Collegiate School for Girls. But in 1870, she sets up another school, Camden School for Girls, and that's very much deliberately marketed at pupils from lower-income families. The fees are are, are lower. And it's very important to her, she she is expansionist, uh, Frances Mary bass and she is looking towards her legacy.
0: All three of these schools that we've been discussing, all three exist today. Cheltenham Ladies and North London uh, North London Collegiate are still fee paying. But but Camden School for Girls, which you're saying it was low fee paying back when Francis Mary Bus set it up. It's not fee paying now. It's part of the state system. So in a sense, you could argue maybe all, all three schools are still animated by that, that sort of founding spirit. There's still, they're still, they're still the sort of uh, how, how they're being run and their intakes today. Would that be fair?
1: Definitely, definitely. You know what? I think the biggest deviation is the fact that Camden School for Girls actually has some boys in it. <laughs>
0: oh no, really <laughs> yeah, okay. um, yeah, fair enough fair um enough.
1: it's 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 such a popular school it's actually got a mixed sixth form um yes but yes. it but it has today retained, not back
0: then but it
1: yeah, yeah not back then not back yeah. then but uh, yeah. it, but it's retained yeah. the name it's
0: still camden school for girls yes <laughs> yes so if you're a boy you go to camden school for girls yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so that's probably actually yeah, you say the, the biggest change but in, in lots of ways it's kind of similarities from the ethos they were set up with yeah very much so very much so Okay, so we've, we've done a bit of the early part of their careers, um, both of these, these characters, and they've, so they've had really these remarkably successful careers. They're, they're kind of well established at this point. I'm, I'm guessing if they haven't got national profiles, they've got quite big profiles within the world of education. But they're still because they're so they start so young, <laughs> they're still quite young women. Oh, they
1: go on and on.
0: <laughs> they don't they 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 live live to be a, a ripe old age as well. So yeah, what what do they do next? They've, they've set up these thriving schools. What, what next for them? What do you do next?
1: I think what's really nice about both of them is that they both think about what's going to happen after they die. They they both think about. Maybe in a slightly sort of selfish sense of a legacy, but also just in terms of of furthering furthering their causes. So they both put quite a lot of effort into teacher training. Frances Mary Buss insists that all of the teachers at her school have some form of teacher training. They often use what's called the Home and Colonial Society which provided a three-month teacher training course for secondary uh, secondary school teachers. And Dorothy Beal also starts to think about uh, a way of providing proper teacher training. Because one of the problems she has, of course, in the early days of in, at Cheltenham Ladies' College is, is finding good staff, finding good teaching staff. But then, of course, once she's been there a few years, she starts to create them herself. So uh, Dorothy Beal sets up a college in Cheltenham to provide uh, teacher training. It eventually becomes... Quite St Hildas and ultimately moves to Oxford. So St Hildas College, Oxford, which still exists, yeah, very much so, and and was one of the the last colleges to hold out and remain single sex,
0: but but not anymore. Is it? Is it it's not
1: anymore not anymore. not anymore. not
0: anymore. Okay. So that's also a really big deal. So not content with you know establishing or consolidating these these famous schools, she she set up the this this Oxford College. Okay, and um so teacher training she's, she's involved with that and also we spoke we a couple of weeks ago we did we obviously did we did a few episodes on exams and we talked about the first school exams in england uh, in 1858 and we mentioned then that those 1858 exams were for for, for boys only mm. but that soon after that there was a sort of effort to, to make the moment for women and again miss bus and miss bill are popping up there uh, so they're involved with that aren't they they're involved with getting girls allowing them to do exams and to do these early school exams set by Oxford and Cambridge. they're really
1: critical in that movement. So they're coordinated by a feminist campaigner called Emily Davies and she sort of mobilises various female educationalists in the campaign. What their ultimate aim is, is to secure the right for women to be able to undertake university entrance exams and to go on from that to take take degrees, which isn't available to them at that time at all. So their first step is to get girls to be allowed to take these Oxford and Cambridge public examinations, which we talked about in our last couple of episodes, which had just started in 1858. And they worry along at this cause. And in October 1863, they gain a concession from Cambridge. Um, Cambridge say they're going to allow some girls to sit their exams on an experimental basis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the Cambridge exams are in December. So they have a mad scramble to try and find some girls who are going to be prepared to take these examinations with only six weeks notice. Wow. <laughs> um, but in the end, they managed to get together 83 girls. 25 of those 83 are sent by Frances Mary Bus from North London Collegiate School. So she sends a big proportion of her girls. Now, they, they don't all get perfect results and... I'm afraid the arithmetic in particular was rather weak. But many of them passed. And the important thing was that none of them became hysterical or suffered nervous collapse at the face of having to sit these examinations.
0: And that was the big issue, wasn't it? The big thing people were worried about is, oh, we can't possibly let girls do the exams because they'll they'll pass out. They won't be physically capable of the strain. It's too difficult. And when you first read that, you think, oh, that's so sexist, isn't that awful? And then as we learned in the exams episode, then you realize that actually the the exam timetable, there's like 60 hours of exams a week. (laughs) So I just think, you know, if you had that nowadays, 60 hours of exams a week, people would be worried about the boys and the girls having a a nervous breakdown. (laughs) And and I think I remember we talked about this as well last week, that there were some girls who were like, I needed some smelling salts uh, after after all the exams. But again, uh, 50, 60 hours of them. Uh, uh, fair play (laughs) fair play they didn't they didn't break down um and some of them passed um so they're they're doing pretty well totally one of the other things they do
1: both miss bus and miss veal is they lobby for girls schools to be included in what's called the taunton commission which is an investigation into the state of of schools which takes place in the 1870s and actually both dorothea beale and Frances mary bus give evidence to the commission one of the commissioners compliments Frances mary bus on her perfect womanliness because of course that is a concern really that, that these educated women are somehow going to become unfeminine
0: okay so that is really interesting that quotation about perfect womanliness and i think that leads us on to another really interesting question about women who get an education at this time you know we've looked at some really interesting things about how dorothea uh, dorothea bill and, and francis mary bus have been really successful um, they've now got to this point where they're getting a national reputation they've been spoken to they've been you know giving evidence in parliament um, but there is that sort of question always, I think, lurking there in the background about how are, how are how are men in particular perceiving them? Uh, h- how does Victorian society in general perceive women who get an education? If women become schoolmistresses, does it mean that they're not womanly enough? And I think to introduce the, yeah this idea, there's there's a, there's a really interesting sort of little nonsense rhyme <laughs> that's made up by allegedly by some of the some of the Miss Bus and Miss Bill students, and it goes like this: uh, Miss Bus and Miss Bill, Cupid's darts do not feel how different from us miss beale and miss bus the impression you're getting from this this rhyme is that the, the, the girls do think about cupid's darts the girls are thinking about uh, a romantic relationship when they look at miss bus and miss beale they think to themselves well they're not going to have romantic relationships is that the sacrifice they are making is the point that at this at this stage in, in in the victorian era you you can be a career woman but then you can't get married and have children. And if you want to get married and have children, you're then sacrificing the, the career. Is that the reality of how it is? Is that the, the trade-off, the, the the choice that women are being forced to make? Or actually, is it a bit more complicated than that?
1: It's difficult. Miss Buzz and Miss Beale both remain Miss. Neither of them marry. Neither of them have children. They did have romances, though, actually. And I was sort of a little bit almost surprised to learn about that.
0: So they did feel Cupid's darts, so their students were wrong. I imagine if their students knew that. <laughs> actually, they, they both received multiple
1: proposals um, and actually across their lives, not just when they were young women. Miss Beale, Dorothea Beale, was even engaged for a short while, just before she went up to uh, the clergy clergyman daughter's school in Carsterton. She broke off the engagement. She felt in some way that the young man was lacking. And, in a way, it's not surprising because what what you say is true in that female teachers at this point couldn't be married. These women were going to carry on running their schools. they couldn't get married uh if they were to, they would have had to have given up their career, yeah. And that puts a lot of pressure on our fiancé, doesn't it? You know, he's, he's got to be really good for
0: you to want to give up all of
1: that side of your life.
0: And is there a worry then if there's some parents who are thinking about, oh, should I educate my daughter or not? Are there some parents maybe who worry that if I educate my daughter, then that, that means she's going to be less likely to get married and have children? Uh, you know, are there are people who worry that maybe education is leading leading girls away from their true calling of being wives and mothers.
1: Definitely. So in a statement that the uh, committee that founds Cheltenham Ladies College put out, they say, there is in many quarters a strong prejudice against the development of girls' intellectual powers from the impression that all well-educated women are blue stockings and that learning unfits them for their domestic mission. So there's definitely that worry out there. This is interesting because it's uh, an earliest use of blue stocking or you know recognition of blue stocking as being this derogatory term that you don't want to be a blue stocking because blue stocking actually starts out as being a positive term uh, not not something to be ashamed of so Cheltenham Ladies College th- th- these uh, this committee goes on to assert that their intent is to develop the intellect without making female pedants heaven forbid and to combine <laughs> efficiency with economy so they they are trying to reassure the parents, and one of Dorothy Beale's early battles at Cheltenham Ladies' College is that she wants to teach mathematics, and it takes her a while to persuade them that they should teach mathematics, that it wouldn't be too unladylike a subject to be taught um, at the school. She slightly learned from her previous battles, so she 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 wears them down on this. She 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 gets her will, but she she plays the long game.
0: So even the pioneering schools have to be really aware of this, if you like, maybe prejudice against what educated women will be like. They even even they are sort of tiptoeing and going gently, mm. and, and 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 saying, oh no no no, don't worry, they they won't be a female pedant. Don't worry about that. All right, we've got to the we've got to the point where we're looking. We've looked at the, almost the sacrifices that you you've, you've got to make that they had to make in order to to become become head teachers and to have this career. What's also interesting is. Not only is it the case that you, you make a sacrifice, you, you can't really have a family if you want to have this career, but in terms of the careers that these two women have, and most women who had a career at this time would have, they are quite limited in what they could do. Yes, they're very pioneering educators and it's very impressive what they achieve, but at least the field of education is open to them because there are lots of other fields that are just completely closed off, right? So I, I can't remember the exact dates, but at this point, you can't train to be a doctor. I think that comes a little bit later. There's obviously you know you can't vote, you can't be an MP. Uh, there's, there's so many fields that are just closed closed off to you. You have got people like Florence Nightingale, uh, you know very impressive not just as a nurse, but in terms of all the lobbying she does in uh, kind of improving hospitals and hygiene and, and what have you. But education really is probably at this stage the, 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 the most obvious career open to women, whereas today women have a tremendous uh, number of options open to them. And there's a very interesting modern writer, Alison Wolfe. I think she's now show. Baroness Wolfe. She's in the, in the House of Lords. And she has written about this. And she says, the, the fact that women have more opportunities now, this is obviously great for women. It's fantastic. So, you know, all, all, all the careers that are open to men, women can, 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 you know, there's nothing stopping them getting involved as well. But in some ways, what's an opportunity for women, uh, her argument is, is, is not necessarily great news for education. Because education, even up maybe even to the nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies, and by then perhaps it was just sort of habit more than more than law, education could rely on a pipeline of of quite talented, educated, clever women who didn't really have many other options, and that's not necessarily great for women. It's not great for women's liberation, but it maybe is good for education that you've just got this automatic pipeline of women who can't can't really do anything else, so they're, they're going to go into that, and it's. You know, this can become a bit controversial. You know, I've heard it expressed by some people in ways where it can be can be controversial. But the, the way I want to take this this, this point is to say, if Miss Bus and Miss Bill were alive today, what would they be doing? You know, if they had all the options that were available to, to women today, do you think they would still be pioneering figures in education? So they would be the, the, the kind of famous head teachers who are, are not just running their schools, but commenting on education and, uh, you know, being national figures. Or, or would they not? You know, might they be uh, MPs? Uh, might they be like running a multinational charity? Uh, might they actually want to choose to be in the private sector? You know, what do you think Miss Bus and Bill would be up to today if they're around? Frances Mary Buss has that
1: real entrepreneurial sort of zeal. And she's also really good at self-publicity. You know, she does a lot of interviews. She runs kind of public events at the school to advertise it. So I almost wonder whether she might be in marketing or or in PR. Though she did she did actually say that she felt that teaching was that was sort of highest calling, higher even than me- the medicine. So so maybe maybe she uh, she was born to be a teacher. Dorothy Beale is interesting. She was very religious um, and, and quite a serious person actually. And I almost wonder whether she might have been one of our first Anglican bishops, female bishops. I could see her going into the church if that had been an op- option available to her.
0: I hadn't thought of that, but that is um, that is a really good point. It makes a lot of sense as well. Let's sort of bring it up to bring it up to the, the, the current day. We've talked about what they might be if they were around today, but what what is their legacy today? Obviously, these three schools they're most associated with still exist. I think all of them still, to a certain extent, retain a lot of the the, the founding ethos. That was instilled in them. I'm always struck with all institutions, but particularly sometimes educational institutions, they, they can be quite small, quite fragile uh, for these schools to still be going now is is really brilliant. Uh, as you were saying, I, I think you, you talked about the North London Collegiate School for Boys. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Right. So th- the fact that these free schools uh, exist is really important. And I think at, at this point, Lizzie, you have got a confession to make. Yeah, um, so we're bringing it up to date with what these schools are like now. So, so go on, confess all.
1: Um, I went to one of these schools. Um, I went to North London Collegiate School for girls. I should have paused, I should get
0: everyone to guess, (laughs) guess which one of these food is
1: went to. Work out how posh I am. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. That's exactly basically what I meant, Lizzie. So you are, you are basically then part of this North London elite that we've been talking about all podcast, right? Yes. So when you were at, at North London Collegiate, was Miss Bus a big deal? Oh, she was a massive deal. Daisy, we had Founder's Day every year.
1: It was the last day of school before the Easter holidays, and on Founder's Day, every girl had to bring in a daffodil because apparently, though I was always a little bit skeptical about this, apparently daffodils were Francis Mary Bus's favorite flower. So everybody came in with their daffodil.
0: <laughs> I've got to be honest, this feels a bit cultish. This is a bit cultish. Oh, wait for it, wait for it, Daisy. With the
1: bottom wrapped in tin foil. And then you'd go and you'd sit okay. and have your Founders Day service. And there'd be singing. Wow. There was even a song, yeah. um, about all the different headmistresses of the school. Each headmistress had a verse wow. to themselves. And it began. Wow. Miss Buzz was a famous teacher who lived long ago. <laughs> And thought that little Victorian girls should a lot of knowledge know. See, I thought you'd like that, Daisy. I can't believe she's got a song. They had to know a lot of knowledge. No no, no skills, none of that
0: nonsense. <laughs> okay. Well, they were, you know, very enlightened people, these Victorians. Um, that is astonishing. <laughs> Once you'd finished all the singing, there was a procession.
1: Yeah. And everybody took their daffodil and handed it to one of the school prefects who put it in a trough and then all of these rather limp daffodils (laughs) that had been manhandled by these girls over the course of an hour-long service were given to local pensioners who I think probably really didn't want them
0: (laughs) (laughs) so this is brilliant this is the kind of thing I can imagine if you know I'd been seeing it as a teenager I'd have you know eye-rolled at but now you hear it and you think, oh, but it's, you know, it's such a great ritual. And it's been going for such a long time. It'd be really sad to get rid of it. And it it, it does form this continuity with, with Miss Bus. So fair play, really. But it
1: is strange, actually, just doing some of the research for this podcast, because as we were saying, they seem quite staid figures to me growing up. You know, we had the portrait in the hall with her wearing this cap and lots of lace.
0: I mean, I I totally think this, and this is whatever I think when I was you know sort of looking look looking them up and looking at pictures of them for this for this podcast. When you see these um these photos, they do look like these very severe, very moralistic Victorian figures. They're, they're quite intimidating, aren't they? Um, and I think sometimes, in some ways, they're, they're they're maybe a little bit unfair because photography didn't come along until they're a bit older. So by definition, I think all the photos we've got of them are they're, they're looking a bit older. But they do look quite intense and quite stern and part of me always thinks what would they make of schools today that always interests me um and part of me always thinks we have talked a lot about their public life we talked a little bit about some of the proposals but what did they like doing to relax what did they like doing in their pastime you know, how, how, did, did or did they not? Did they never relax? Were they just always absolutely on it?
1: Dorothy Beale was interesting. She she really was quite uptight. She was very disapproving of novel reading. She liked Shakespeare, um, and read a lot of Shakespeare in her youth. But yeah, she she didn't really like to see her girls reading novels. And there's quite a good story from her later life. She'd had an operation and she needed to go away to convalesce for a period of time, and she had a friend accompany her. And the friend packed some books for them to read, and uh, Dorothy Beale insisted that they take work by Smith on the Minor Prophets. And the friend suggested, "Why don't we? uh Why don't we take Persuasion by Jane Austen?" <laughs> I know I'd rather read. <laughs> Dorothy Beale was pretty reluctant, actually. She she sort of grumbled about it, but but eventually Persuasion got packed, and the friend began to read her persuasion and dorothea beale got hooked but she couldn't she couldn't admit it she couldn't admit that she really wanted to, to, to hear what was happening to um to anne Elliot and not hear about the book of Micah so uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that actually makes me feel a bit a bit better a bit warmer towards her
1: <laughs> uh, so she was always coming up with excuses throughout the whole of the convalescence you know it was Brilliant. oh I, I'm very tired now so we, we'd better have a bit of persuasion or oh, I'm not I'm not feeling very well I've got a bit of a headache so we better have persuasion oh we've only got a few minutes before before lunch or before tea or before supper so so best not get get into yeah. the minor profits
0: this reminds me a bit of when you have kind of older relatives and they'll, they'll turn their nose up at maybe like an american box set and then actually they start to watch it and secretly they really like it and think it's really good <laughs> so that's that's really interesting so maybe there is a bit of truth to that that stern high-minded image but there is also a bit more of a human side as well which is which is, is quite entertaining. And I, I guess, yeah, just, you know, dwelling on that, that issue of these sort of stern, high-minded Victorians, you know, you were talking about when, when you were at school, I think, you know, at that point, the Victorians were maybe viewed with a bit of suspicion. I would say even now, that, now they're viewed with even more suspicion. Uh, would that be, you know, fair to say? And you have these debates often about Victorian values and as Margaret Thatcher said, Victorian values are the ones that made this country great. And there'd be plenty of people now would say they're the, uh, their values were all wrong. You know, they were they were too moralistic, and they were too unpleasant to the poor, and and, and what have you. And I think Miss Buss and Miss Bill, in some ways, maybe embody both sides of of, of that debate. Uh, in some ways, they're incredibly modern and pioneering, and there's lots about them now that we would probably, uh, you know, people would admire. Um, in other ways, they're, they're very much of their time. A couple of things that I say. One thing that just absolutely stands out for me about about them, and some you know, other Victorian figures you look at, is. The unbelievable work ethic, so the unbelievable energy. <laughs> they they just work so hard and accomplish so much, and I say that's almost typical of the Victorians. You know, look at someone like Charles Dickens. His output, just in terms of the, the number of words he writes and the the time he spends working, is is astonishing. So you know when you look at that you think they they work so hard and they they do seem to be motivated as well by something beyond them that isn't just all about them it's about trying to advance uh, opportunities for for other girls and for, for women there are very very impressive things about them is, is that is that fair would you say that
1: totally totally i i really like the way that they were both constantly thinking about the people coming after them and they were thinking about the, the long game, how they could shore up what they've achieved and make sure that it was continued on, on into the future. Frances Mary Bus basically sort of grooms a young woman to take over from her. And she's actually uh, someone who Frances Mary Bus supports in achieving a degree. She's one of the um, early women to manage to get a, a bachelor's degree in 1881. And then she goes on to, to get a doctorate in 1884. One of the things Frances Mary Buss said shortly before she died was that she would like to revisit the earth at the end of the 20th century to see the result of the Great Revolution of the 19th, the women's rights movement.
0: Oh, wow. Did she really say that? Incredible. I would just love, love to know what they'd make of schools today. society. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it, if you could bring them back for a day. You would just love to see it. Um, and you can I'd like to bring it back for Founders Day see whether Daffodils really
1: were her favourite flower definitely
0: and you can, you can this is it you can you can have your own ideas about what what, what they'd think about today but ultimately you just, you just don't know do you but it, it would be it would be fascinating and as I say there is a bit of a trend even quite soon after the Victorian era in the 1920s there's a bit of a trend to to, to dunk on the Victorians a bit and I think the most famous one is Lytton Strachey and he writes this book Eminent Victorians where he says all kinds of uh, implies all kinds of sort of quite unpleasant things about Florence Nightingale and what her real motivations might be. Uh, and, you know, there'd be people who might say that about Miss Bust and Miss Bill, but I don't think we're going to do that here. here I really we're not going to be um, super revisionist and uh, uh, try and uh, uh, come up with these um, bold new takes on them. I think we're going to, we're going to say, I think they're two, two really impressive women who do, who do so much, so much for women's education. And and obviously we we don't want to get you retrospectively expelled either, so I think that's an important thing. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think I think they're tremendous. It's always interesting to kind of question legacies, but I'm going to come down firmly on on their side here.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
0: So yeah, as I say, yeah. Fa- thanks, Lizzie, for for giving us that tour and, and letting us know about the uh, the the, the, the daffodils on Founder's Day, um, and we can all go away and think, yeah, what would what would Miss Bus and Miss Bill make of schools today? It's an interesting one to ponder. Um that is all from us uh, for this for this episode. um so tune in for the next podcast where we're gonna have we're gonna have some more um idiosyncratic Victorian personalities for you.